Very good. We are uh, in our Advent series of Meals with Jesus, and today we come to probably one of the most famous meals uh, that Jesus has, his meal with Peter. So if you would turn with me to the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. It's a long passage, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, and uh, this is uh, a classic, and you should really pay attention carefully because uh, it's a secret, but this is like Mark Rist's favorite passage. So, let's turn to John 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. This is God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it during the season of waiting that makes up Advent. It is a season of long nights and deep thoughts. A season of looking at our failures and being reminded of why Jesus had to come that first Christmas night. Sometimes we wonder how you can love us at all. So help us to see our own story in the story of Peter, in the story of his failure and in the story of his forgiveness. And once more, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it means to be forgiven by you, what it means to be called by you, and what it means to follow you. And for this, we need your grace. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of John this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. A group of children from a Sunday school class uh, were once asked, what does love mean? Here are some of their answers. Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Four years old. Nika, six, says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. Tommy, also age six, says, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. There's hope. Rebecca, eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Bobby, seven, says, love it's what's, is what's in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. And Jessica, eight, says you, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. It's a lot of wisdom coming from children. Even they know at an early age that there are no more pow powerful words uh, in the world than I love you. You could have wealth, power, status, but if no one says that they love you, none of those things make up for love's absence. And it's always been this way and it always will be. The most powerful force is love. A love that looks you in the eye and when she says your name, you know your name is safe in her mouth. A love that can give you incredible courage 
when you're scared, a love that you can almost feel mending your broken heart, a love that paints toenails and lasts a long time. When you're discouraged and somebody speaks those words to you, I love you, you can feel the light coming back on again. The words I love you can disarm the worst enemy, break through the thickest wall, and mend the most shattered heart. I love you. There's power in those words. And here's the good news for all of us. Before the creation of the world and up to this very moment, God has said, is saying, and will say to you, I love you. And when he says your name, it's safe in his mouth. He means it, and he says it a lot. There's nothing more transforming than that moment you first understand that the God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things and is sovereign over all events and over all people, went to great lengths to draw you back to himself. There's nothing more transforming than the moments when you understand that God looks you in the eye. It's as if he cuts your very chin in his hand and pulls your eyes up to meet his. And he says, I love you. Jesus wants Peter to know. Jesus wanted to know if Peter really meant it when he said, I love you, to Christ. So Jesus made him say it a lot. I've always wondered how Peter felt when he went through the events of this passage. After all, he was the great betrayer, the one who denied Christ three times, the one who went back on his word, broke the relationship, and utterly failed at following Jesus. Now, Unless you've been living all by yourself on a desert island someplace, you no doubt know what it's like to experience a broken relationship. And so you also know the tension that then exists within that relationship. It is a palpable tension, an almost physical awkwardness that persists until reconciliation is secured and the offending party has been restored. And it's one reason why I find the context leading up to John 21 so intriguing. It actually shows up in our text in a little verse that we all skip over. It says that Jesus revealed himself for the third time. Jesus has now appeared to his disciples twice since his resurrection. This will be the third time. He's already dealt with the unbelief of Thomas, but he hasn't done anything yet about Peter's threefold denial. Twice Jesus and Peter are together in the same room, and twice Jesus says nothing. The silence is deafening. I mean, Peter is the proverbial elephant in the room for both of those meetings with Jesus, 
And Jesus apparently does nothing to secure reconciliation and restore him. At some point after these two meetings, Peter decides to go fishing. We don't know why, but I think the context points us in the right direction. John 21 is the first time we see Peter fishing since he was originally called by Jesus to be his disciple. And that fact, together with the broken relationship and the lack of reconciliation in Christ's first two meetings, suggests that Peter may well have just given up. And he's just returning to doing what he did before Jesus called him. Most certainly, Peter's failure is still front and center in his own mind, in his own experience. And perhaps Jesus' silence during those meetings is just more than Peter can handle. And I can imagine Peter's thinking going something like this. Why would Jesus choose to deal with Thomas and not with me? Thomas wasn't even there for the first meeting of Jesus, and yet Jesus dedicated the entire second meeting to dealing with Thomas's doubts and addressing his needs. But I was there both times. Jesus said nothing to me. Perhaps for those reasons, Peter's decision to go fishing looks like he's giving up, allowing his failure to get the better of him. This is a story of a man who felt that his failure put him forever beyond the reach of God's grace. It's a story for anyone who's ever been discouraged or broken by failure. Perhaps you've been where Peter is, ready to pack it in and quit. Maybe you felt this way or even feel this way now because you failed in some way, maybe repeatedly, maybe even publicly like Peter. And Satan has used the opportunity to kick you when you're down. Or maybe Jesus has just been silent in your experience seemingly giving his attention to others, the Thomases of your world. And it feels like he's passing you by. If you find yourself in any of those situations, remember, you're not in uncharted waters. Peter was there long before any of us. And that ought to encourage those of us who endure similar circumstances. Let's do more than simply remember Peter's example Instead, let's focus on what Jesus is doing with Peter, because that's where the real encouragement is to be found. In fact, there's three things in this text to be encouraged by. We're going to take them one at a time, starting with the preparation Jesus allows, verses 1 through 8. The preparation Jesus allows. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. As I said, I find it fascinating that John makes no mention of Jesus saying anything to Peter during their first two meetings. The silence really is deafening. Why would Jesus choose not to deal with Peter right away? Why would he wait till the third meeting with him? Especially when he's chosen to deal with Thomas at the first opportunity. Well, I realize for some people, Jesus' silence with Peter might appear unloving. Why would Jesus let someone he cares about squirm like that? Why would he put off what he could have done when he first saw Peter? Now, admittedly, the text doesn't answer any of those questions. But I think we can come up with a likely answer based on what Scripture does teach us about the nature and character of God. We know, for instance, that God is not cruel or mean-spirited, but perfectly loving, and that means that he always has our best interests in mind. As the late RTS professor Dr. Knox Chamberlain used to say, God is always as drastic as necessary, but as gentle as possible. God is always as drastic as necessary, but as gentle as possible. He might cause grief in the lives of his people, but he does so with compassion because he's always doing what's best for us. As the prophet Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, for the Lord will not cast off forever but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So it seems likely that Jesus waited until the timing was right to deal with Peter. Maybe the unbelief in Peter's heart hadn't yet come to the surface, that Peter wasn't ready to be restored, whatever the case, we know the silent treatment must have been what Peter needed most at that time. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have given it. He would have done something different. Jesus is clearly preparing Peter for what will come. However, it seems that Peter just can't take it anymore, and so he retreats to what he knows best, and that's fishing. And Jesus meets Peter where he's at, on the shore. He comes, gives them a fishing lesson, and when they recognize Jesus, Peter can't wait to get to him. I love it says, he threw himself into the sea and he swims to shore. He leaves the rest of the disciples to bring in the boat and all the fish. And people who fail, people who sin, people who can honestly admit their sin and their failure can't wait to get to God, to get forgiven. Peter has to get to shore because Jesus is waiting there. But first he has to face the restoration that Jesus offers. The restoration Jesus offers, verses nine through 17. This is really the heart of our text. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. When Jesus finally deals with Peter, he does so in a way that brings Peter's failure to mind. I want you to note the clear parallels between this account and the account of Peter's denial in John 18. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus deals with Peter just as the day was breaking. Now, to be sure, we don't know whether a rooster crowed or not, but the rooster normally crowed at daybreak. Someone once said there are no wasted metaphors in John, and I think that's true. In verse 9, we're told that Jesus invites Peter and his disciples to gather around a charcoal fire. Where was Peter when he denied Christ? John 18, 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And where's Peter when he's restored by Christ? Warming himself by a charcoal fire. You think that's a coincidence? I don't. There's only two times in John 18 and John and John 21 that the word for a charcoal fire even occurs in the New Testament. Only these two times. Now, the text doesn't say this directly, but I think the smell of a charcoal fire couldn't help but remind Peter of the worst moment in his life, his denial of his Lord. But Jesus brings him back to this reminder, brings him back to his denial, brings him back to a charcoal fire. And I think Jesus is telling Peter, now, let's try this again. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. And three times Peter has to answer because three times he denied Jesus. We see those denials in John 18, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And then in John 18, 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And finally in John 18, 26 and 27, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. 
The Lord was asking Simon, son of John, do you love me? After all that's happened, can you truly say that you love me? Now, John doesn't tell us how Peter reacted to those questions, but from our own experience, we can imagine his reaction. His heart probably began to race, his stomach churned, his cheeks burned, his eyes misted. This is a tense moment. Moreover, Jesus addressed him as Simon, son of John, his name before he met Christ. The way the Lord addressed him intentionally calls into question his title of Peter, the rock. And the message here is something like, Peter, do you remember? Do you remember what you were like before I met you? And the question, even though it was motivated by love, had to hurt. Now, people have made a big deal about Jesus using two different Greek words for love in his questions. To be honest, I think that's an exercise in missing the point. The point is in the repetition. And that's because actually John uses two different words for love when it says the disciples who love Jesus. He uses two different words for no. There's just a lot of different words used here. It, the, the key point is the repetition of what's being done. And it should be obvious what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is recreating the scene of Peter's failure, an attempt to bring conviction to his heart by making Peter come face to face with his own sin. And of course, Peter gets it. We see that verse 17, he was grieved after the third question. Why are we having this discussion? Peter's already been forgiven. He's back in fellowship with the Lord. He's already seen the risen Christ twice and heard the comforting words, peace be with you. But Peter couldn't forget his lapse of love. Had he disqualified himself from further service, would his heart ever know peace again? And why did Jesus have to bring this up at the end of the meal in a presence of all the other disciples. All of that had to hurt. And Jesus did it for Peter's sake. Jesus did it for Peter's sake. Peter failed publicly, so he would have to be restored publicly. He denied Christ three times, he would have to affirm his love for Christ three times. Peter has to go through the agony of public repentance for Peter's sake for the disciples' sake, so he can be restored to his full function as a shepherd of God's sheep, a fisher of men that Jesus had called him to be. Christ is teaching us, through Peter's example, that the greatest priority in life is our love for God. Here we see a man who loved God with all his heart, but he needed to be affirmed in that love before he could serve fruitfully again. Some of us may love Jesus dearly, others may not. But the abiding principle here is that before all things, even before our service to him, we must first love him with all our hearts. That's the highest priority in this life. It's the first question for everyone who wants to please God. However, while it's true that serving doesn't prove that we love God, it's equally true that we can't honestly love him without serving him. Peter not only receives this threefold restoration, but also a threefold 
commission in these verses. He's told, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The story is crafted very carefully because not once but three times Peter stood by a charcoal fire and denied his Lord. And now, not once but three times, once again he stands by a charcoal fire and professes his love for Christ. It's even more significant when you realize in the ancient Near East it was custom to say something three times before witnesses in order to formalize it, in order to make it official. But one more thing awaits the Apostle Peter, and that's the calling Jesus brings again. The calling Jesus brings again, starting at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now remember how this story started? They're fishing. It's early, maybe six in the morning. Peter and the disciples have been out fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And there's a figure on the shore uh, there as the morning dawns. And it's a voice they've heard before, but they don't recognize it yet. And the voice says, children, do you have any fish? And what they're really saying is, you haven't caught anything, have you? The question has a little sting to it. It's designed to see if these fishermen will acknowledge that they are failing at fishing. Jesus does this a lot. He'll use casual statements or questions to see if people are going to acknowledge the truth about themselves. What were you talking about on the way, he says to the disciples, who are arguing over who is the greatest. Why don't you go get your husband, he says to a woman who's been married five times and is now living with a man whom she's not married to. Children, do you have any fish? And something remarkable happens. A group of fishermen admit they haven't caught anything. They don't even comment on the one that got away. The story starts with an admission of failure. And that's all Jesus needs to hear. Back in verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. He says, try again. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Don't quit yet. Give it another try. So they do, and their nets are so loaded with fish they can hardly pull them in. And suddenly they realize who the voice belongs to. And Peter is filled with emotion. Perhaps he remembers when he first met Jesus. You see, this isn't the first time that Peter was told by Jesus to let down his nets after a long night of fishing and catching nothing. 
Luke records the first and the only other time that Jesus did this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's in your outline, uh, if you have the bulletin, or you can just turn there in your Bibles. It's right there on your app. Luke 5, 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. When they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the first time. And Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Broken people pray that sometimes. It's probably not really the desire of his heart. It's probably just fear talking. But his very first prayer to Jesus is, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus says, I know. It's okay. I can help you with that. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. And so Jesus calls Peter to follow him. Now, in recreating the Luke 5 scene in John 21, Jesus seems to be reminding Peter of his calling. Peter had been called away from fishing to become a fisher of men. But now, as a result of his failure, he had returned to his former way of life for the first time since he was called by Christ. So Jesus recreates the scene to remind him he's been called away from that life and called to this life. And verse 19 and 22 seem to confirm this because once again, Jesus tells Peter to follow me. And therefore, John 21 seems to be a second calling, if you will a starting over, a wiping the slate clean. Jesus seems to be telling Peter, I know what you've done. I know that you failed. Peter, follow me. We'll start over at the beginning. I'll wipe your failure away. I'll put it as far from me as the east is from the west, and I will remember your sin no more. This is the restoration that Peter's been waiting for. Jesus waits until the time is just right. And he recreates the scene of Peter's failure, and he recreates the scene of Peter's calling in order to show Peter, not just tell him, that his sin hasn't changed his calling. I know that you've sinned, Peter. Follow me. One of the reasons that so many of us love a New Year's Day 
because it seems to offer a chance to start over with a clean slate. It's like every January 1st you get a do-over. It's precisely what the gospel offers every follower of Christ. It offers us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and so on. And it says to each of us, I know that you have sinned, follow me. This then is the restoration and the sense of the Lord's love and acceptance. It is a beautiful thing, I think, that the Lord asked this question of Peter three times. What better way was there of completely undoing what Peter had done, of wiping it off the slate, each denial matched with a confession of love, and each denial matched with an assertion on the Lord's part that Peter was not only forgiven and restored, but his calling was still very much in force. The Lord is still ready, willing, and able to have Peter as his servant and to give him important work to do. But Jesus has one more thing to tell Peter. And with the disciples standing around the fire listening, and with each of us listening some 2,000 years later, picking up halfway through verse 18, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The primary interpretation of these verses throughout church history is that despite the infirmity of age, Peter would die a martyr's death by crucifixion. And the giveaway is John's description of his death as a means to glorify God, which according to the New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, is standard Christian language for martyrdom. Moreover, the church fathers all view the phrase, you will stretch out your hands, as a description of crucifixion. The sense of Christ's prophecy is something like this. When you were young, you had your own way. You dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted with complete independence. But the time is coming when you will be old and someone else will dress you, carry you, and crucify you. Christ is telling Peter very explicitly that his subsequent life of service is going to be extremely difficult with the humiliation of his pride and in infirmity or injury or illness and it would culminate in the shame of his own personal crucifixion. Peter, who came to love Jesus in a way that I doubt few of us can truly comprehend, served Christ to the very end and church history tells us that he was indeed crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die as his Savior did. Church history also tells us that wherever Peter went to preach, for the rest of his life, people mocked him and heckled him by crowing like a rooster. Now that's church tradition, that's not scripture, but it has the ring of truth to it. And what's remarkable is the implication that Peter lives the rest of his life under the shadow of this prediction that the Lord has made. For 30 or more years, Peter lives his life and does his work knowing that someday he'll be arrested and crucified. A form of death is terrible enough when it overtook you suddenly and by surprise. But Peter lived with the active prospect that he would die by crucifixion for years. 
How many times have you denied Jesus? Maybe you never said, I don't know him in a courtyard somewhere, but certainly you fostered some kind of attitude that denies him, some behavior with your spouse or a neighbor or your kid, behavior that in and of itself denies what you believe, behavior that's as if you said, I have never met him, I don't know who you're talking about. Those moments happen. And they leave us wondering, am I done? How could he trust someone like me? I'll just go back to what I used to do. And back we go to substance abuse or to anger and cutting words or to loneliness and isolation. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't even want to talk about those bad moments. There's nothing more transforming than the moment when Jesus steps into your life, looks you in the eye, cups your very chin in his hand and pulls your eyes up to meet his and he says, I love you. Granted, he'll push you to a point that hurts. He'll ask, do you love me? He did that with Peter. But I love how Peter responds. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know beyond all my mess ups, all my screw ups, all my getting it wrong, all my putting my foot in my mouth, you know, at the heart of who I am, I love you. Jesus' response is beautiful. I know that, Peter. I know that. And I no longer call you Simon, son of John. I call you Peter, for your name is safe in my mouth. I've got a big kingdom and you're part of it. I've got a whole dying world out there that needs to be told about my love. Would you do that? Would you do that? You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you for this story of Peter. Thank you that for all the uncomfortable questions of John 21, we rest assured knowing that it is the risen Christ who asks them. This is the Jesus who's already been on the cross and in the tomb. This is the Jesus who had taken all of Peter's guilt, failure, disgrace, humiliation, and sin. All of Peter's shame had been carried by Jesus on the cross. This is the Jesus who take, takes all of our guilt, all of our failure, all of our disgrace, all of our humiliation, all of our sin, and all of our shame. So Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith, for our fear in admitting our failures, and work in each of us this last week of Advent as we sit down to meals with Jesus and as we hear what he has to say about following him. Thank you for this story of amazing grace. Give us, we pray, the faith to believe that despite all the sin in our lives, we too can follow Jesus. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in your gospel to draw us ever closer to the one who forgives us and calls us to follow him. Your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.